Switched On on FM 104 and I'm joined by Irish Seven Summits co-founder Paul Devaney. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? Very good. Thank you so much for chatting to us. So tell me, where did Irish Seven Summits begin? Well, I suppose it began um, at Everest Base Camp in 2005. Um, I was working over in Asia and um, I was playing a lot of Gaelic football and training over there at the time in kind of very humid conditions. And one of the folks in my office said, you should go to base camp and trek up there before you head back home. Mm-hmm. And it never entered my mind to, to go to Everest Base Camp or to trek anything large. Um, so I kind of looked into it, headed up to base camp. And on the way there, I read a few books on climbing Everest and a few different things like that. And I read about the Seven Summits and it stuck in my head. And I thought that's a very interesting challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I got back, I, I organized a bunch of my buddies from the University of Limerick our graduating class, uh, asked who wanted to go. We got uh, five of us together that wanted to go, and we went off and climbed Kilimanjaro. And that was the start of the Seven Summits and the start of what became Irish Seven Summits. How much training did you put in for Kilimanjaro? Quite a bit. Um, We were quite intimidated by it uh, because we'd never really done a whole lot. I'd done the Three Peaks Challenge in the UK when I was working over there. And I'd, you know, I'd been to base camp and had some sense of what altitude can do to you. But we were proper, as we should be, we were intimidated by it. Um, I did a lot of training. It, was, it wasn't altitude training. We were training at a fairly low level. Um, but yeah, we would spend every weekend for at least six months before out in the hills, uh, as much mountain work as we could get. I was based in England at the time. So I was up on Scaffell Pike, Snowdon up to Scotland, wherever we could get a chance. Um, and yeah, we, we took it seriously. You've done six of the seven summits. Which ones have you done already? I've done Kilimanjaro, Elbrus in Russia, which is the highest in Europe, Aconcagua in South America, the highest in South America, um, Kosciuszko, the little baby one in Australia, Denali, the big mountain up in Alaska, highest in North America, Vincent Massif, which is the highest peak in Antarctica. So that's the six that are done. And then Everest is, is the last to go. Which has been your favorite experience of the six? By far the Antarctica one. Um, you, you go to the tip of South America um, and you fly, well, we did at the time, you fly in a massive big Russian military transport plane down to a blue ice runway in Antarctica. And then you take another little small plane from there to the base camp and you're well within the interior of Antarctica at this point. Um, and then off you go. And that was a massive adventure. I can imagine. Because I'd say, one, it's beautiful, but also just the cold to deal with that as well. Insane. And and you, you go down there and there's mountains, you know, bigger than the Alps down in Antarctica. So you're looking at one direction and it's as flat as you can imagine off to the pole. And then you look the other way and it's it's these incredible mountains. So... That combined with the cold, and and it, it was just a pure cold, and it never really got dark when we were down there either. Um, so it, it's just it's a it's a magical place to go to and to see the research station that we landed at. And just the whole, I remember coming back off the summit of that, and it was very cold in the summit, and, and coming down through, and it was just a whiteout at one point, and we're in rope teams, um, and just thinking, you know, this is just whiteout. We, you know, a hundred years ago. Before that, um, you know, there was guys trying to get across Antarctica mm-hmm. and they had no GPS and they had no nothing and they had no team to try and call on a satellite phone. And they were going through this experience of 
you know, white out as well. So it's just the most magical place. And, and it really gives you a sense of being away from everything and being isolated because we were there until that massive Russian military transport plane came back a number of weeks later. Do you really get to take it in when you're on Kilimanjaro or if you're in the Antarctica? Do you get to take that moment in or is it kind of afterwards where you're like, wow, what have I just done? You do get to take it in a bit. It's um, like a lot of it is is grueling, you know, head down. It's not very comfortable while you're doing it. And then you raise your head every so often and you just, it's constant wow, you know. Mm. On Killy, you'd open your your tent in the morning, stick your head out, and it was just wow, you know. Um, And the same in Antarctica. So you do have these moments where you realize, wow, where am I and what am I Mm. doing? This is insane. Uh, And then you just, I'd I'd say that's a very small percentage. And then the large percentage is just doing the legwork to get up and get back down safely. And then afterwards, your brain does this thing where it just removes all the bad stuff and (laughs) creates this, this imaginary, you know, everything was just so easy and so fun vision of it. And you get to enjoy that as well. I suppose that's what keeps you pushing on to the next one. It does. Yeah. And you have to, you have to record as you're going along how things were because you do forget them and, there, there is that that mist that rolls in and it makes everything so magical and, and so easy. And you have to remember when you're relaying this to other people that want to do it, you have to be realistic about how hard some of this stuff is and maybe how dangerous some of it is too. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's always a good idea to just, just write something down or just log something in your phone as you're going along, just to have that little diary of exactly how it did really feel. So you've done the six of the seven. You did mention Everest is the last. You have tried it on two occasions in 2014 and then again in 2015. What happened when you went to try it? We tried it in 2014 and we were, it, it, it takes about 55, 50 to 60 days to, to complete an Everest expedition. And you spend the first 20 days of that kind of meandering very slowly towards base camp and climbing mountains on the way to get some adaptation. So your first 20 days is kind of low level stuff. And then you, you engage the high mountain after that. So we were finishing our adaptation on uh, a mountain just above base camp called Le Bouget. And um, we just f- finished it, come back down into the village. And then we found out that there was a massive avalanche between base camp and camp one in what's known as the icefall which is just this meandering um, playground of, uh, of frozen vertical ice that keeps moving around the place. Um, and this, this massive chunk of ice had broken off and come thundering down and killed, I think it killed 14 Sherpa that day. And I think a few more people died in the few days after. So it, it had very quickly become the biggest disaster in the history of Everest. And then everything stopped um, as we thought it would. And, then it evolved from being a disaster of human proportion to being a strike by the Sherpa against their government because of their reaction to what happened. Um, and then it became a fight for rights by the Sherpa um, and by the people that work in the valley. And it took all a whole other meaning. And this lasted for about a week and a half. A lot of drama at base camp, a lot of loud meetings, some of which we were involved in, some not. Um, And then at the end of it all, they decided, no, the the season's cancelled. Everyone go home. Wow. What was that feeling like after you trained for so long and gotten so far? It was, um, 
like there's a, there's a little bit of you because you have human reactions as well as understanding the importance of what's going on around you. So like the little selfish human part of you goes up, you know, bugger, that's that's you know that's two years and sixty grand gone down the wow. toilet. Um, but you know, you, you look around you and you're part of what's going on. Like our, we were in a Sherpa owned and operated outfit, so you know, they knew people who were killed and some of their relatives were killed. So you, you, as the days go on, you become aware of how how tangential this is to your team and the people that are responsible for your safety. So that, that does make you more, give you more of an awareness that this is bigger than you. Uh, now, we were still slightly removed from it because it happened while we were on another peak and we walked into base camp the next day after it happened. And then we were in all of the aftermath. So it was it was a different experience that year to, let's say, the following year when we were directly involved. Um, but, yeah, it's there's a part of you that does think, you know, that's that gone. Um, it, that doesn't last for very long. You have to bounce yourself back up and realise how lucky you are. Of course. And then 2015, you got involved in the earthquake. Yeah, we were we went back in 2015 on the basis that if, the biggest disaster happened one year it was unlikely to happen two years mm. in a row so and we had done all this training for years like the, the Everest bit of this project had been more than two years of dedicated full-time training um, so we decided to push on and go back and in 2015 we went through the same thing we climbed a few different peaks we climbed island peak on the way up to base camp and you know got a preparation was awesome we were We'd gone up into the ice fall where the accident had happened the previous year. The ice fall was in great condition. We'd come back down. We were getting ready to move to Camp 1 that evening. And then we sat down in our tent and the ground started to move. And this massive 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck Nepal in and around the Gurkha district. And we felt it very, very strongly. It moved the entire base camp. It moved the Kumba Glacier um, that sits right through base camp and up into the ice fall. It felt like all the mountains were moving around us. It was the most surreal feeling I've ever had. Um, and then a few minutes later, it had detached a whole lot of ice and snow from a neighboring mountain that turned into a shockwave and came at us as a massive avalanche um, and destroyed the whole center of base camp right adjacent to where we were. And yeah, it turned into a, a very different thing. We, we emerged not really knowing what had happened and then started to walk through base camp. And it was, it was like a scene from a plane crash. Um, everything, entire camps have been pulverized. There was just people's stuff everywhere. Um, and then as we moved towards the middle of base camp, we could see, you know, the snow started to turn red and we could see there's a lot of people in a lot of distress. So we were pushed into action, you know, let's let's start carrying people. And base camp turned into a, sort of a massive triage center and um, people with massive head injuries or impact wounds were sent in one direction and people who could walk or injured were sent in a different direction and different camps were used to try and look after them. And, you know, people became, became doctors and people became porters and people became all sorts of things um, that whole day to try and save as many as possible. And I think by the end of the day, there was 19 people killed at base camp and there was a few dozen in, in pretty bad shape and needed to get out pretty quickly. It's coming face to face with Mother Nature because you hear about it, but when you're kind of in the middle of it, you don't expect it to happen to you. So how do you move on from that? I, I, I don't know. I, maybe uh, I think I've been lucky in that, you know, I, I've managed to, I suppose, compartmentalise it a little bit better than other people that have experienced it. Mm. 
um, one of the ways that I tried to deal with what had happened, because it's a very sudden thing to happen, and then you find yourself in it. And when you're in the middle of it, and this sounds really contradictory, but when you're in the middle of it and you watch base camp change from what it was, which is about a kilometer long series of camps into this big medical emergency area and watch people that have changed roles and are coordinating all this it's amazing to watch it yeah um and you you have this sense as you're walking i remember we were walking through we're carrying this chinese lady trying to get her to the far side to well the camps that had the doctors in it and as you're walking you realize that you're walking through the center of all of what has happened and that if it happened again this is where you will get wiped out but you 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 become amazed by what's going on around you as well and that kind of uplifts you mm-hmm. as you're going through it so there's a lot of adrenaline working that gets you through it uh, there's a sense of purpose that gets you through it and there was a combined sense of purpose among all the teams you know sherpa climber like to try and get stuck in there's no place for just sitting on the edges even though some people couldn't get stuck in and that's understandable enough because mm-hmm. it was a very difficult scene um but i i stayed around for about afterwards in nepal for about 20 days and i did a lot of relief work in the valleys around Kathmandu with the nepal ireland society and that was an eye-opener leaving base camp and all of that what had happened there but going into the valleys and seeing the destruction and how an earthquake destroys villages and how people react to it and whether they're getting the assistance and you bring some assistance but it's not enough and you watch people's anger at that and it, it's just watching aid work, you know, at the front line. I, I just, I found that fascinating. Um, and I found it selfishly therapeutic in that I think it helped me to work through the experience of being on the mountain and seeing what we'd seen. Because we were able to work with some amazing groups in Nepal who, you know, who set up hospitals in the hills uh, to try and treat people, to get them their medicines and to try and bring them food and some supplies. And these were some of them just the most amazing people you could ever meet and the resilience it, it rubbed off on everyone around them so i think that whole thing helped as well and some of it you have to put behind you and maybe mm-hmm. push down a little bit because you know sometimes i read back bits of the stuff that i wrote at the time and i don't even recognize it you know yeah. it's it's like reading a novel it does show you how people and communities come together when something like that happens ah it does yeah um and, and there was there was a, a Nepal cancer hospital that I'd done a little bit of work with. We went up into the hills and we just set up a, a kind of temporary medical camp. And on the way back from that, and that was a long day of hard work, uh, there was a bus full of, I'd say, almost entirely Nepalese plus then me. Um, and they were singing songs and drinking beer on the way back. And I, I remember mm-hmm. thinking, this is a very unusual reaction. You're, mm-hmm. you know, about 9,000 people killed in the country. Most of the infrastructure has been decimated. But you have to get through the day and get into the next day. And you have to keep yourself, you know, vibrant and energetic. And you have to look at the positives. And I, I, I never saw people so immediately focused on the positive as the Nepalese people were after that earthquake. It was incredible. Do you think you might go back a third time? Hopefully. Um, I'd like to finish what I started. Mm-hmm. Um, it always, it's always in the back of your mind. It never goes away. Um, you started something, you want to finish it. The mountain's different now. That was eight years ago. Mountain's more crowded now. The logistics are more complicated. Um, it's more expensive. Um, 
I'm older, I have family. There's a lot of different ingredients that have to come together, but I, I do want to go back and finish it in a responsible manner when I, I'm sure that I've done as much preparation as it takes to do. And critically, when my desire to do it is, you know, so almost over the top yeah. uh, that you can't, you can't restrain yourself. When you go there to do something like that, you had better want to do it more than you've ever wanted to do anything ever. Yeah, you need to be all Otherwise in. You won't, you won't get up. Yeah. You need to be all in entirely. Yeah. The passion needs to run almost wild out of you. Um, and then you have a shot because it's hard. Like 50 days on any mountain's hard. 50 days with the effects of altitude yeah. wearing you down. You know, it's and having to deal with logistics and cues nowadays and different things like that. It's a psychological battle as much as it's a physical, physiological battle. So you have to really have have the passion. And it's it's people assume you do because you've done other mountains. Yeah, but passions come and go with yeah. these things as well. Mm-hmm. And you have to you have to build it back up. And I certainly have to do that. I have to get back to basics and I have to build my passion for being in the mountains back up. Um, and, and I'm doing that and, you know, getting a kick out of it again. Um, and and I, I hope to go back before I'm before I'm too damn old to do it. <laughs> uh, you'll get there. But if anyone wants to hear more or find out more, they can go on to irish7summits.com. Paul Devaney, thank you very much for chatting to us. Pleasure.